This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a thousand tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and LA bid on Ruby developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average Ruby developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the Ruby Rogues link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Ruby Rogues Podcast. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 274 of the Ruby Rogues Podcast. This week on our panel, we have David Brady. This podcast takes place between 2 and 3 a.m. Jessica Kerr. Good morning. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Quick shout out about Rails Remote Comp. Uh, you can submit talks or you can just sign up for a ticket. We also have a special guest this week, and that is Josh Duty. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me on. You want to give us a quick introduction to who you are? Absolutely. Uh, I came up, um, I began my career as a computer and electrical engineer and did that for a while and then moved over to consulting uh, for software companies um, on implementations. And then more recently, I quit my day job and I'm focused 100% on uh, my book and courses and coaching and consulting uh, around fearless salary negotiations. So helping uh, software developers and engineers uh, get paid what they're worth. Yeah, the salary negotiations nice. when you go out on your own are brutal. They don't have to be, though. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to make it funny, but it didn't work. <laughs> yeah, speaking of making it funny, um, Josh, I love your last name, and our podcast listeners expect a certain type of humor from me, and that's all I'm going to say. I'm not going to make the joke. I'm not going to do it. Um, my last name is Brady, and I grew up during the era of the Brady Bunch, so... Um, I'm just not going to make the joke, and therefore, implicitly, I've already done so. See what I did there? Great. So, welcome to the show, Josh. Thanks. It's uh, it's really good to be here, and I appreciate you not making the joke. Yeah. Uh, and I wonder how many people know what joke you didn't make. Uh, anybody who's ever heard me on the show before knows the joke. So, <laughs> speaking of salary negotiations, yes. yes. <laughs> Thank you, Jessica. What? I think Chuck was remarking that they're really brutal when you're your own boss. Yeah. Well. That's a different kind of thing because then it's, uh, well, how much do I pay myself? How much do I retain in the business for other things? How much do I invest in the business? How much do I pay the people that are working with me? But, hmm. uh, yeah. Invest in the business. That's an interesting piece because uh, some people consider their job an investment in their own learning, their mm -hmm. own future career potential, or at a startup, it's often about um, hoping for a windfall yes. of um, stock options. Yeah. Uh, I think, uh, so I read about a little more than half of Josh's book. Um, I, I quit reading about how to leave a job on the best possible terms because I was much more interested in getting the highest salary possible. And anyway, there, there's a lot of stuff in here that I hadn't really considered doing before. And I've done some salary negotiation, but Usually it was to the point of, well, here's what we're willing to offer you. And then it's, okay, well, uh, I'd like a little bit more than that. And then they come back and they say, well, here's a number in the middle. And then I go, okay. 
Right, right. But uh, the sort of um, the the simple version of salary negotiation where you you do negotiate, but maybe not super hard. Yeah, it was more of a well, it's expected that I negotiate at least one time, right? Or go through one round. I I won't hire on with somebody unless I've negotiated salary with them, even if they don't give me anything. Um, like when I hired on at Cover My Meds, um, I went through the interview process, and uh, Alan Gilbert, who's the uh, VP of Engineering, took me to dinner and said, "Here's uh, here's the offer." And I looked through the offer, and I had already discussed with my wife what I expected in terms of, you know, my minimum and what I maximum thought I could get away with. Uh, you know, asking for and still make them happy and that sort of thing. And and it was right down the center line of, of what it was. And I was about to say, yes, I accept. I'm ready to go. And then I remembered I need to negotiate a little bit. And so I, I started talking about, you know, the the health benefits. And we had some back and forth about that. And it was a very friendly, open discussion. And that was what I needed to know is if if I try to negotiate with you, are you going to have a friendly, open discussion or are you going to uh, just go completely rabid and like screaming at me for being ungrateful and da 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 Because you will reveal a lot about what kind of a place this is to work. And once once he told me, you know, once we had that discussion, I'm like, okay, I'm ready to accept. And there's, I guess, two separate points there. One is I knew what I wanted before I went in. So I was able to accept right there on the spot. And the other one being that you have to negotiate because you have to know what, you know, asking of an employer for more money, there's no, no way that I can think of to get closer to the jugular vein in terms of asking an employer to give where it hurts. And they will, <laughs> they will very quickly show you their true colors. Yeah, I really like uh, what you said about going in with a plan. Um, I call it your minimum acceptable salary, but mm -hmm. I use it a little bit differently. But the idea that you go in and really the first thing that you need to do is know, you know, what is your criteria for sort of minimum success in the negotiation? Because mm -hmm. um, otherwise, you know, anything that they say could be a surprise to you or it could seem like a big number um, or a low number. But if you haven't done you know, real research and sort of some soul searching about what's the minimum What's the minimum that I'll accept to do this job? So I want to make sure that I win either way. Either I win because I managed to get the minimum salary and benefits package from the company that I desired to do the job and now I'm happy to be there. Or I win because I was able to confidently walk away because they, mm -hmm. they didn't meet my minimum. So either yeah. way, you, you can create a situation early on in the process where you can win regardless of the outcome. Yeah. I like, I like that term, minimum acceptable salary. I've, I've used just the vanilla negotiating term, which is a BATNA. Um, which is it stands for uh, best alternative to negotiated agreement, and once you know what your batna is, in other words, what, once you know what it's worth to you to walk away, then if they push below that level, you have no problem saying no because you have a better yes waiting for you out the door, and you don't end up getting pushed up against the wall thinking, oh, I have to take this, you know, even though they're offering me you know, 20 K less than I wanted. And there's no vacation days. It's all PTO and da, 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 da. And, you know, and there's only five vacation days per year and da, 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 whatever. Uh, I have to take it because if I don't take it, I won't be able to feed my family. And instead you go in going, okay, look, I want this much. And, uh, if they can't give me, you know, I absolutely need this much in cash, but I'd like this much in cash and I'd like these benefits. And, 
everything can be fluid in there. You can give me less cash and more benefits or fewer benefits and more cash, and that's great. That all works fine. But if you are below my minimum cash or if you you know, are crapping on the cash and screwing me on the benefits, I have no problem saying, you know what, I, I'll take door number two, please. So in the case of whether to accept a job, your BATNA is either the job you still have, some other offer you have or expect, or worst case, uh, you keep looking. And so mm-hmm. the, the offer that you expect to be able to get if you keep looking. Yeah. And there's a, there's a moment when, hi, I, I guess I'm the special guest on the show. I'll let you talk in a minute, Josh. I should turn <laughs> these into questions for you. I should be a better interviewer, shouldn't I? I'm just going to run out and get Josh, a coat. I, I have an answer for Jessica, but I think I will uh, instead yield the floor to our special guest today. Uh, Josh, what's, what's your alternative? If, if, if they're not going to meet your minimum acceptable salary um, and you, you know, how, what are your alternatives? How do you convince yourself to say no and walk away? Well, I think, I think Jessica really summed up uh, the options there. Um, and I also think kind of taking, taking one step back. So, um, it's important to, um, to really spend time with that minimum acceptable salary and fold in all the information you have available. So you just mentioned, you know, what if I just have to have this job, uh, to put food on the table for my family or to make rent or whatever other pressing thing might be there. Mm -hmm. That I think is a legitimate reason to lower your minimum acceptable salary. Right. And so it's a kind of a combination of you know, what are my alternatives if I walk away? But also, you know, what do I require right now to do this job? And while my job is to help um, uh, engineers get paid the most that they can get paid or get paid what they're worth, I think it's also important to make educated decisions about things like your BATNA when you're willing to walk away. And I think, you know, the alternatives that were, that were listed are, are perfect um, in terms of your one alternative might be just not accepting the job. You know, you might have a job that you like already, or maybe you don't have a job right now, but you're looking for the right opportunity. Um, or maybe it's another job. You've got two or three offers. And so all of those different things will color not only your minimum that you go in with, but also just the way that you approach the negotiation in general, how aggressive you are and things like that. So, um, Jessica, I think you summarized the the kind of normal cases for a BATNA pretty well. I, I want to push back on this a little bit, though, because in your book you basically said that your minimum uh, acceptable salary is something that would make you want to stay and not look uh, look around again. And if they're offering me a lower salary than what I think I can get, then, you know, is my minimum salary, you know, may I, I might take the job even though I it, they haven't reached the minimum acceptable salary, and that's mainly because you know, like David said, I got to feed my family. I got to put food mm-hmm. on the table somehow, but that doesn't mean I'm going to quit looking. So you, you may accept the job, but you may also not stay there very long. I've heard a few people say that that's somewhat an unethical though. If you take a job and then you get a better job offer a month later and you go to that other job because they've been training you for a month, you haven't actually contributed value yet. So I, I'm, I'm curious where you wind up on that, on that scale, because it, it is an edge case, but it's, it's, not an easy one to answer either. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, in terms of your minimum, you know, I think, I think the case that you described is one where maybe your it sounds like your minimum is actually less than sort of what you wrote down on paper. Um, so, you know, if you're willing to accept the job for, um, for less than your minimum, then I think you've actually just said, well, my minimum might actually be less and I'm going to continue looking. Um, I do think it's a, it's a serious consideration. Um, how, 
how soon after you've taken a job you would leave. Um, I was in a situation like this a number, you know, about 10 years ago now where I interviewed for a job and they said, uh, you know, we're not going to extend an offer. I said, great. And I took another job offer that I had in hand. And I think, you know, less than a month later, that original company came back and said, Hey, do you want to come on board? And I had really wanted that original job, but I made a personal decision for myself that my reputation was more important than taking that job. And I stuck with the job that turned out to be a really great opportunity. Um, I wouldn't recommend kind of in general for career management purposes, which is sort of a meta concept above salary negotiation. I wouldn't recommend taking a job and then leaving that job after a month to go elsewhere. Um, for reasons, I don't know if I would call it an ethical uh, reason, but sort of a reason of your own reputation management in that um, industries are small. They're much smaller than you mm -hmm. think they are. And everybody knows everybody. And so I don't think you want a reputation as somebody who would induce a company to make the kind of investment required to extend a job offer and bring you on for onboarding and buy you a laptop and all these things that companies do to start up the process and then leave because that's something that other companies would eventually hear about through the grapevine and probably would account for when they're talking to you, knowing, well, even if he negotiates against us, he could leave in a month and we're going to blow, you know, $10,000 onboarding him. Um, so I think, you know, that's more of a, I see it as more of a kind of a reputation or career management meta concept where you just want to be very careful what signals you're sending about your loyalty and how dependable an employee you are when you accept a job. Yeah, I think that's that well put. I wanted to put another option on the table uh, to what Jessica had said, and this this segs nicely into it. Um, we'd been talking about, you know, what are your alternatives? Why 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 would you say no, especially when you've got to feed your family, right? When the the rent is coming due, and you've got to you know you've got to make a, a payment on your food or your housing. And one of the things that I consider is, am I going to be unhappy at this job at this pay range? There's a there's a saying that you know above above a certain minimum amount salary is a very poor motivator but below that minimum necessary amount salary is the only motivator and I have found that if I'm too close to that line I will become miserable at that job and I will be very frustrated and I will feel like uh, you know, the, if the negotiations went poorly, I, I'm going to already have kind of an antagonistic relationship with the employer. And it's actually healthier for me to turn down money that I need now rather than take a job that I'm not going to like and I don't feel I can ethically walk out of, you know, third, you know, two weeks later or six weeks later if I get a better offer somewhere else. And so that's something else to consider when you go in is when you're looking at that job offer um, – especially if it's too low, don't accept it while you're in the room. Say, I need to think about this. And one of the things to weigh is, you know, if I go to work for these people, I'm going to stay for a year, no matter what am I, or six months or, you know, whatever your minimum, your personal minimum, you know, tenure is, and I'm not going to be able to leave. Is this negotiation acceptable? Is, am I going to have a good time at this company uh, that, you know, intangible, am I going to make friends? Am I going to be getting industry in, an, in you know, experience in, in a niche of the industry that I care about, that I'm interested, that'll be fun? Or is it just another J-O-B that I don't care about and I'm going to want to leave? And if you know you're going to want to leave and you're going to be miserable at that salary, factor that into your decision, you know? You... You're not going to be very good at the job either and you're not going right. to learn well. Yeah, I agree. What, about, what about if you're contracting? Contracting? Yeah, as opposed to a full-time position. Well, that's that's a different discussion. Um, 
most most programmer jobs around here start as contract positions. Gotcha. Well, I have a whole show about this, so go check out the freelancer show. We talk about <laughs> we talk about this a lot. Nah, uh, I don't. No, I don't mean independent, like actual freelancer contract. Right. I mean you're you're working for a. They call themselves recruiting firms, but they they all they're are right. contracting firms, but really they're just. So it's kind of a contract to hire deal. Uh, often, or contract to potentially maybe someday hire. Right. Um, and I I don't feel nearly as bad leaving. A, a job as when I'm still a contractor after a few months. Yeah, well, the understanding there is different because, you know, a contract is um, at least understood to be less permanent or at least um, more flexible in, in that way. It's, it's supposed to be less, less of an investment. Right. Yeah. They're, they're, supposed, to in, they're supposed to invest less in you. If you're a contractor, because you are disposable, right? You're, oh, right. You're, they like legally can't provide training, right? Which is, yeah, right. So I think a contract arrangement um, is it's different, but you you want to negotiate, right? So you get your best rate. But there's also, I think you made a really good point of you know I don't feel as beholden um, to a company if I'm a contractor because the understanding is that I'm a free agent and that I'm here temporarily and. I mentioned, you know, the cost of onboarding earlier. Uh, contractor positions are generally designed to sort of minimize that cost of onboarding and more generally to minimize the cost of, you know, employing that help at the company. Um, they're just, they're, they have so much less overhead uh, when they bring in a contractor. And so it's much easier to sort of plug somebody in and, and then take them out. So I don't think that kind of career management thing that we talked about with full-time positions would necessarily apply so much with a contractor position as it's sort of understood to be temporary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which maybe that's a negotiation option. Maybe well, at this at this um, salary range, I would be willing to work as a contractor, but I don't want to be full time. Yep. Yeah. Okay. I've also I really I've also straight up told a, a client, um, I will work for you, but just so you know, this rate is absolutely at the bare minimum of what I would normally accept, and if I have other clients competing for my time, um, that may that may become a factor. So I will come work for you and I will make sure that we get this project to this stage. But I want you to know that in 90 days, I'm probably going to renegotiate the contract with you. So they, they know that I'm expecting, I'm not only, uh, disposable, but I've already put an expiration date on myself. Josh, you wanted to loop back on something? Yeah, there was, there was one thing that I, I thought was a really good, um, point that David mentioned, which is sort of, um, one of the benefits of salary negotiation for companies and for employees is the idea that um, I don't I can't speak for everyone, but I can say for sure that I've had the sensation where you get a job offer. It seems like a decent offer. Maybe it meets your minimum and you start the job. And then a month or two months later, you have this thought that am I being paid what I could be paid? Did I get the best deal that I could have? And I think that kind of creeping doubt can really affect your performance. So we mentioned, you know, if I know that I'm not really paid, maybe what I'm worth on the market. But then there's the sort of middle ground where you realize later that you might not be paid um, what other people on the market are making. Maybe somebody says something offhandedly, you know, in a Slack channel or at the water cooler or if you're in a physical office. And you start wondering, are these people that I'm working with getting paid more than I am? And, and I think that's a good reason um, to negotiate in general because it allows you to sort of see – as we've alluded to in this conversation, what's the most that this company is comfortable paying me for the services I'll provide? But also you'll know, okay, well, now that I'm in the job, I negotiated. I think I did a good job of negotiating. So I can be pretty confident that I'm paid fairly and I'm paid what I'm worth here. 
uh, and I did the best that I could for myself. And so that's something I can take off the table as I adapt the company and start contributing there. And I think that's a good for sort of your mental uh, stability and sanity when you get into a new job to get rid of kind of all those uncomfortable feelings that you have with uh, dealing with change and all that stuff. So just sort of something that, that came to mind that I thought I would throw out is there's a reason that negotiation can benefit employers too, which is their employees are not sitting around wondering if they, you know, maybe didn't get the best thing they could have from the employer in that arrangement. All right. I want to jump back because I know people are going to see salary negotiation on the title of this episode and they're going to think, oh, they're going to tell me how to negotiate a higher salary. And we've kind of nibbled around the edges and we've gone deep in a couple of areas. But it seems like most people, when they think about salary negotiation, they're thinking, okay, so I send in my resume, I get the interview, and then and then what do I do? You know, what what tactics are there? And, and I wanted to talk really quickly about some of the things that you mentioned in your book about salary negotiation. And I think the first thing, and this is something that I'm putting in my How to Get a Job book, is that the, it really starts with doing research on a company that you want to work for. And by having that information, you've empowered yourself, <clears throat> at least in some ways, to start figuring out how much you want to be there and you know, what, what a job there looks like and, and generally how much they pay. And so even before you um, write your resume, possibly, or as you write your resume or doctor your resume so that it looks more like the employee that that company would want to hire, I mean, that's where you're first starting, so to speak, your salary negotiation, where it's, uh, I, I'm going to be as much as I can the, you know, the best option for them so that when I go to negotiate, I'm coming at it from a p position of strength where I'm saying, mm -hmm. I'm the kind of person that can make this kind of difference in your company. And then from there, you talk about, you know, resume and interview and, and things like that. And you go through the whole process as it, you know, plays into salary. So do you want to talk uh, for a second anyway about this process of salary negotiation and how it goes well beyond just the offer letter? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I love the way that you summarized um, the, the preparation that I recommend for, for interviews because I think it's extremely important um, to go into an interview with my philosophy that I, that I write about in the book that I, and I talk about elsewhere is that your job in the interview is to get a job offer and to make sure it's the best offer possible. And the way that I think you do that is by telling a story about how the company that you're interviewing with will be better if you're a part of the team. And so it's sort of an empathic approach to interviewing where you're not thinking so much about me and I and what are my skills, but you're thinking about what is this company about? What are they doing? What are their goals? What's their mission statement? What are their pain points? Uh, who are their employees? Who are their customers? And all these things about the company, and that's all the research that you just mentioned that you should do beforehand so that when you show up to the interview, you're thinking about the company and how you can contribute to improving the company. And that will set you off. I think on a much better path to the interview process and then to getting a better job offer because you'll be constantly demonstrating how the company will be improved if you're be a part of it, if you're a part of it, as opposed to talking about uh, your prowess with coding or your background or your resume and all these things that are kind of you focused. If you're company focused, that will impress the person that's hiring you uh, much more. And I've got personal experience with this as a, a hiring manager. Um, people really stand out when they come in and they actually know what my company is, what we're doing, and all that good stuff, as opposed to the people that come into an interview and they don't know anything about the company. Sometimes it's not clear they know the name of the company they're interviewing for. They certainly don't know what job they're interviewing for. Uh, it's just a really bad sign that shows a lack of engagement and, and real interest. So you want to start off with that research that you mentioned, Chuck. I think that's the best way to start preparing for interviews and to stand out. 
Are there specific things that people need to do in order to get the information they need? I know that sometimes that information is a little bit hard to come by. I think there's there are certain kind of layers of complexity that you can go through. So I think even just doing the first layer, which is Googling the company, uh, spending you know 10 minutes on their, their company site, like I said, looking for mission statement, um, how big are they, uh, what's their goal, just that top layer of, of kind of broadly available public information is a really great place to start. And then, of course, if you can do a little more research into their industry um, or if you happen to know people who work at the company and you can try and understand, you know, what's, what's happening in your, in your quarterly meetings? Like, what are the things that the company is the most interested in right now uh, in pursuing? Those things are good, too. But even just uh, literally 10 or 15 minutes on Google and on their company website, just learning about the company and what they're doing. Look at job openings. That'll usually tell you a story about kind of what they're doing if they have a ton of sales positions open. That tells you that they're trying to grow top-line revenue. Uh, if they have a ton of developer positions open, maybe they're in more of an R&D phase. Um, that kind of thing is what you're looking for. If they're a publicly traded company, can you get a hold of their quarterly statement? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how you're many not gonna, people will You're not going to read, read the whole them. thing. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Memorize no. it. <laughs> yeah, no, memorize no, the quarterly no. statement. The, um, the, the money isn't as significant as usually at the beginning. There's some paragraphs about strategy. Yes. No, that's a great that's a great point, Jessica. I mean, I think the quarterly statements or the annual statements, if they're public, you know, what are they up to? They usually have, like you said, the first page or two is, you know, here's what we're up to. Here are the problems that we're facing right now. We're facing, you know, Apple likes to talk about 4X headwinds and stuff, which you can't do much about. But they'll also talk about supply chain constraints and, um, you know, services having issues with them because of their dependencies on uh, different companies. And that can be, you know, really useful information that you can get about what's top of mind for the company right now. There are also sites where you can get like employer reviews from prior employees, eh? Yeah, Glassdoor I know is one. Glassdoor, that's the one. Yeah, I think Glassdoor is interesting. Um, I think it's worth reading kind of uh, reviews from former employees, but those reviews are, there's sort of a selection bias there. Oh, yeah, um, totally. So it's, it's a tough. data point. Right. It's, it's it is a good like data Amazon point. Reviews. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think it's worth kind of, you know, oh, what's what, what are people saying about this company? But also just sort of realize that you're looking at a pretty skewed um, subset of the people who've actually worked for the company when you read those reviews. Yeah. Yeah. One one uh, company I worked for was the worst company I ever worked for. And they uh, one of the other employees had written a poor review for them on Glassdoor and they had actually got it taken down. And he had put it back up a couple of times. So there's also <laughs> that going on, right? Where, you know, these companies are saying, hey, you know, somebody is defaming us on Glassdoor. And, you know, so, so yeah, there's also that. I think a good thing to do sort of in that vein um, that, that will get you probably more reliable results, if it's very similar, is, you know, search LinkedIn and see if you know anybody who's a first level connection at the company um, or, you know, somebody who knows somebody. You'll get, I think, a lot better information if you can talk to somebody who currently works there and just, you know, see if you can get an introduction and say, hey, you know, I see that you've been working at um, Acme Corp for a year. Um, what do you think? You know, what's it like working there? How stressful is it? Um, how fun is it? You know, what do you like about it? What don't you like? And, you know, that current person who's actively working there right now uh, will often give you pretty good information, too, that you could use to maybe balance against um, Glassdoor company reviews and stuff like that. Yeah, totally. And they're going to give you the information with the slight bias toward this is a good place because they need to believe that because they work there. Yep. So yep. so if you've done your research, you've got your resume in, they call you in for, in for an interview, then what? 
then you want to, you know, kind of leverage all that information and research that you did to stand out in the interview. And basically what that means sort of at a high level is um, most of the questions I get asked specifically about the interview process are how do I answer a question about X? And so it's how do I answer the question, why should I hire you? Or how do I answer the question, why do you want to work here? Or how do I answer the question, you know, why will you be a good fit on our team? And the answer that I give is always take the information that you learned about the company and what they're trying to do, find specific goals or pain points that they have that you think you can address or help address, and then marry your skill set and experience with those goals or pain points to tell the company again how they'll be better if you're a part of it. So throughout the interview process, that's what you're thinking the whole time is, what's this company trying to do and how can I help them do that and how do I articulate that to the person that's interviewing me? Um, You also want to take it as an opportunity to kind of learn more about the company. You can ask a lot of really good questions like, what's the greatest team that, or the greatest challenge that your team is facing right now? is a great question because it shows that you're interested, but also they're going to explicitly tell you a challenge that they're facing, which means that in that interview or a future interview, you can talk about how you can help address that challenge specifically with your skill set and experience. So that's the whole kind of interview process in a nutshell is just continue banging the drum about how the company will be better if you're a part of their team. And then, of course, they're <laughs> going to ask you, how much do you want to make? How much, yeah. we, how much do you want us to pay you here? Usually, um, I, call it, I call that the dreaded salary question. Uh, it actually comes up you know, pretty early on uh, in the interview process. And so it's pretty sneaky. And that's why I call it the dreaded salary question, because it usually will kind of sneak up on you when you're in compliance and interview mode, just trying to impress them. Uh, and they'll ask you what your current salary is and what your desired salary is. Uh, my advice, and the more that I write about this and the more that I think about it and sort of debate people about it, the more confident I feel about it, is don't disclose your current or desired salary. Um, there's almost no, or maybe even just no, upside for the employee to do that. Uh, it can only, it can only hurt you. So just don't disclose it. And you can say something like, I'm just not comfortable sharing that information. Um, if they really push, you can say, you know, for a current salary, I I feel like, you know, HR decisions at my current company are a private matter. And I'd rather not disclose that to another company who could be a competitor. Um, and when they ask you about your (laughs) desired salary, just tell them, I don't know. I, because you, I think this is a literally true statement that you don't know what the company would value your skill set at. They're the company. You're just a person who's trying to get a, a, yep. a role at the company. So tell them, I'd rather not disclose my current salary, and I don't know what my desired salary is, but I look forward to, to seeing what you guys think. I like turning that one around on them with, um, they'll, they'll say, you know, what's your, you know, what kind of, what salary range do you need? And I'll say, well, compensation, and I, I will use this exact sentence, comp, the exact phrase, compensation is a great big ball of wax. You know, and that's, that's my opening statement that lets them know I'm open to negotiation of soft dollars against hard, you know, depending on, you know, how much time or, you know, whatever hardware allowance, conference budget, you know, I'm willing to trade that for salary dollars. Um, but then I will push back with, um, if they say I need to know what your minimum salary is, I'll just say, um, I'm, I'm not willing to disclose that right now. Um, the question you need to know is, you know what this position is worth, right? I mean, I've, if, I'm inter- if I'm interviewing for an entry-level position, I'm not going to get a quarter million dollars a year. And uh, I know that, and they know that. And so, you know, it basically, if they... If I'm looking for an advanced engineer's salary, um, 
and they're interviewing for an entry level position, I have found that if I can get all the way through the interview process and they love me, they will go back to the VP of engineering and say, scratch the entry level engineer, let's hire Dave Brady and it's going to cost more, but it's going to be a better value down the road. And they will change the position that they have open as a result. And if I just if I disclose, well, I'm looking for X dollars and it's an advanced engineer salary. And right now they've just got a piece of paper from their VP that says, find me an entry-level engineer. They're just going to disqualify you. They're going to throw, you, you know, throw me out of the interview. And so I use the compensation as a wah, big ball wah. of wax. Yeah. Womp, womp. <laughs> Um, but they, that's, that's my counter question is what is this position worth to you? And, um, yeah, you turn that around on them and then just sit there and, and put the pressure on them to waffle because now it's, it's, it's against the, you know, it's, it's, it's in their worst interest to answer that question because if they give a number that's too low, uh, it's just as bad as if you'd given a number that's too high. I, I have to say though, that. I have interviewed at companies where I really, really wanted the job, and I really didn't want to argue with them. I didn't want to tell them no. I didn't want to tell them that I didn't want to tell them something. And it's so sometimes it's like it's it's so hard to stick to your guns and hang in there and not tell them. Well, I'm not going to tell you that. No, it's but it's it's tricky because. Um, if you really, really want the job, um, then you know you're going to get married to the job. And if you get screwed over, it's going to take you a lot longer to realize you're getting screwed over. And you're going to be a lot more bitter when you do leave, right? So um, I go in there. If I really want the job, I get really excited instead of nervous. And when it comes to the salary or to any point in the negotiation, I just kind of kick myself and say, okay, I have to negotiate. I have to turn this into a play exercise. I have to make this fun, mm -hmm. meaning I have to take my life or death need out of the equation or, you know, they'll, they'll stick their fangs right in my neck. And if I, if I can turn it into play, then, then it becomes very, very easy. You know, it's like, you know, what's your minimum? And, uh, I just shrug and say, you know what? I've, I've worked for way less than what you're probably going to offer me, and I've I've made employers happy for way more than you're going to offer me. Um, we can negotiate. It's uh, it's negotiable. Next question. Move on. Yeah. Yeah. I just I, I just want to warn people. It's one thing to say this when we're sitting here listening to or talking about it on a podcast, and it's a completely different thing when you've got some emotion tied up in it. Oh yeah. Yeah, and I can to to kind of. Um, follow up on that. I just published, I think it was last week, an article called 10 Reasons You Should Not Negotiate Your Salary. Uh, and, you know, spoiler alert, it's a tongue in cheek. Uh, I end up debunking all 10 reasons. Um, but <laughs> a, a big reason for it, may, I'll, I'll send you guys a link for the, for the show notes. Um, but the reason I wrote that piece is these are the, the common reasons that people don't negotiate. You know, they're afraid they're going to get the job offer pulled or they're afraid they're going to ruin the opportunity. And so a lot of you know, what I write about in the book and the reason I wrote the book the way I did, if you read it, by the way, you can see it's very clearly written by an engineer. It's follow these steps, right? So I'm trying to give you a process to follow, to take you out of the emotional feelings that you might feel about the job opportunity or mm -hmm. how stressful negotiating is. 
So you can say, well, the next step in the process is this, and I will do that step. Uh, and then when I coach people one-on-one, probably more than half of the value that I add in coaching is just talking people off the ledge when they're going to buckle and <laughs> not do what's in their best interest. So I get a lot of, you know, I'll, I'll work with someone and say, okay, well, here's what I think your counteroffer should look like. And here's your plan for the negotiation. And I'll talk them into it. And then they'll put together an email and they'll send their counteroffer. And then immediately they'll email me and say, I haven't heard back. I don't know. They, what if, what if they're going to, you know, they start freaking out and I say, listen, you just have to trust me in about 36 hours to 48 hours, you're going to get an email back with a response from them. It's going to be fine. The worst response you'll get is, eh, we're not budging. And the best response you'll get is great. Thanks for countering this. That's what we're going to do. And so a lot of it is just, you just have to kind of take a deep breath and say, this is part of the process. Uh, the recruiter or the hiring manager of the company that you're talking to, they do this all the time. People negotiate all the time. And, um, you know, it, it, your, your sense is this is my only shot. Uh, but the reality is they're not going to pull the offer. Uh, they're not going to, you know, go nuclear. Uh, they're just going to consider your counteroffer and maybe accept it or, you know, maybe they'll work with you a little bit or maybe they'll say, I, you know, I appreciate the counter, but our offer stands. And then you're right back where you started. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I totally, totally agree with that, that a lot of it is this, this stress of what happens if I negotiate? What if I lose this great opportunity? Uh, but that just doesn't happen. Well, and I yeah. think, I think again, you know, you, you mentioned the stress and that emotion and our minds, at least mine, I'll, I'll claim this. Um, but sometimes, you know, it kind of goes to the absolute, what's the, you know, the worst case scenario. And it's, well, I'm never going to work in this town again because I offered, I asked for an extra uh, $5,000 on my salary and, you know, and then my kids will starve and my wife will have to go out and, um, wash clothes with a plunger and a bucket and, you know, life is going to be so hard. And the reality is, is the worst case scenarios are going to hold firm. Yep. That's right. I've, so full disclosure, I have folded as many times as I've stood firm. Um, this, you know, I, I, everything I know about negotiating, I've kind of learned, uh, by falling down the ladder and hitting my face on every rung as I went. And, um, the, the notion of play has really helped me uh, basically just get out of your gut and get up into your head and be, you know, be emotionless and just kind of play with it. You know, it, it's, it's kind of like, let's, let's see, you know, it's like, can I negotiate you into budging on this? You know, it's, it's kind of like, you, you go in with some stupid, silly thing of, I don't care whether I get the job or not, or maybe I care a lot about getting the job, but I'm not going to take the job unless I can get them to budge just one inch on anything, you know, that kind of thing. And I had gone in with this notion of play. I'm going to play a game negotiating with these people. And when they got to the salary question, what do you need to make? I said, you know, compensations are a great big ball of wax. And you guys know what the position is worth. Um, you know, it'll it'll work. And the interviewer grinned, and then he came back and he hit me again with, "Well, but, but we really need to know." And I said, "I'm not going to tell you." And he and he and he grinned again. And that's when I realized he's playing. He's enjoying trying to make me sweat. Um, he's enjoying trying to make me panic about this interview. He's trying. He's enjoying. Uh, making me try to trick myself into feeling like I'm holding, into f feeling like I'm being held over a barrel, which was great because I I realized I'm the one who holds myself over a barrel. I'm the one who lets that emotion happen, and so um, you know he came back and said, "Well, I really need to know," and I said, "I'm 
you know, it finally, he came down, he, he came back and he said, I really need to know this number. And I said, I am not going to give you one. And he circled back again. And he said, I need to give a number to, to HR. And I looked him straight in the eye and said, no, you don't. And he said, yes, I do. And I said, then you're not going to. And that was it, you know, and it, it, we, it, it got pretty intense, but we were both grinning about it. It's like, we both knew that we were, you know, we were playing that, you know, the, when you've got a baseball bat and you each put a hand up, you know, one, the next hand up on the bat, trying to get to the end. Um, we both knew that we were escalating our negotiation just for the sake of negotiation. And there wasn't any tension in the room other than the tension that I started to place on myself. And when I realized that he was grinning, all the tension, I took all the tension off myself and we had a great interview. It was, it was awesome. And, uh, I held firm on the salary thing and I got the job anyway, even though he didn't write down a number for HR. So, right. It's it's uncanny, right? Uh, After all that hemming and hawing, he didn't really need a number to give HR. Right. Or if he, if he did, if he really did need a number for HR and that's a negotiation tactic, right? It's let me talk to my manager. Um, the, the the used car man you know i i need to have this information for hr um well if you really need to have it just write a number down if you <laughs> like me as a candidate make up a number that um uh that hr will accept if you don't like me as a candidate write down a number that hr is going to flunk me but right. let me know you're doing it so that you can stop wasting my time yeah just write down 1 million dollars if you need a number the number is 1 million dollars yeah. you know or yeah, 1 dollar exactly. yeah. whatever yeah <laughs> yeah so so uh back to the I just kind of want to walk through some of these other things that you mentioned in the book because I thought they were really interesting. And, and yeah, that I mean, that negotiation comes up. They do the interview. They come back, right, with, well, we're still working on your offer. You know, can we get that number? And, yeah, I think you've illustrated that really well. Um, but what, what happens when, once you've done that, and I know the answer because I read the book, but um, what happens when, after all that, they finally come back to you with a number? So they come back and they say, We'd like to hire you for sixty thousand or a hundred thousand or something, and and you're sitting there going, okay, well I need to counter this because Josh said I have to send him a counter offer. So, what number do I give him? I mean, do I double it? Do I? Oh well, I really want the job, so you know, one hundred one thousand dollars. <laughs> just a, just a counter. Um, yeah, so that that's a great question. Your answer uh, uh, is correct, which is you're gonna you should counter offer. Um, you should counter offer every time that you get an offer. Um, and how much to counter? So this is where my method I think is a little different than some other methods. And the reason um, my answer is going to be what it is is that you have to remember that if you've followed my process until this point, you have not disclosed your current or desired salary, which means you've taken away. Um, uh, we talked about Badna earlier, so now I'll throw the word anchor out there. You've taken away the anchor that the company could use to sort of um, tie you down to the numbers that you gave, which means that their offer should reflect approximately the value that they put on the role and your skill set for helping satisfy that role. So in other words, to, to say that maybe a little less opaquely, they've made you an offer that's in the ballpark of what they're willing to pay you as opposed to an offer that reflects you know, some marginal improvement over what you're currently making or something like that to get you just to come on board. So when you counter, you're countering knowing we're already kind of in the range of what they're comfortable with. So let's see how high that range goes. That's, that's the strategy. 
And so when you counter, you're going to counter between 10 and 20% above the offer. Um, that range is not arbitrary. Uh, I spent a lot of time uh, trying to figure out what's the right range here for sort of a, a general case counteroffer. And this is based on, we didn't talk about this part of my background, but I've done consulting with companies on how to man manage compensation structures and how to represent them in software and all this good stuff. So this is based on you know, professional experience over a number of years, plus being a hiring manager. So you'll, you'll counter 10 to 20%. The 10% means um, basically that you would like to get the job and you don't have any reason to believe that they desperately need you to do the job. The 20% end of the range is you could take the job or leave it and you're pretty sure that they need you pretty badly. And this sounds like it might be hard to discern, but usually if, if you've asked the right questions and you've gone through the interview process, you have a sense of this. I mean, you obviously know how badly you need the job, but you'll know uh, if they've said something like, well, we just had somebody leave last month and we have to fill this role tomorrow or we're sunk, they probably need you to fill the role pretty badly. And if they're just taking the interviews with you as a courtesy to, you know, uh, the brother-in-law, the, brother the CEO or something like that, then maybe they don't need you so badly. So you counter 10 to 20% and that's kind of where you start. I recommend delivering that counter in an email. Um, the reason is that it allows you to sort of restate your case to go along with the counter. So if you just say a number to somebody on the phone, they'll have to repeat that number to somebody else and then they'll have to kind of manufacture their own uh, uh, reasons that they think you're countering on your behalf. Whereas if you put it in an email, which usually you'll get sort of an informal job offer in an email. So all you have to do is just hit reply to the email with your counter and include sort of a summary of your case that we talked about all through the interview process, why the company will be better if you're a part of it. So here's the experience that I have that's directly relevant to what you're hiring for. Here's why I'm the piece that fits exactly in the empty space you have in your puzzle right now. And because of those reasons, I'd feel more comfortable at, and you list your counter offer, uh, and you know, let me know what you think, right? So uh, to summarize that, counteroffer 10 to 20%. If possible, deliver it in an email and writing along with a summary of your case so that now they've got your counteroffer and they've got a written summary of your case in your own words so that if they need to go to finance or to somebody else for approval, they don't have to manufacture a case for you. They can just either use your case verbatim, copy and paste it, or they can summarize what you said about yourself. Sounds like sales. Here's what you're going nice. to get. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. It, 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 it didn't occur to me until quite a bit after writing the book that a lot of um, what I uh, do with my methods are sort of sales uh, strategies because I don't have any background in sales whatsoever. <laughs> but I think that you're right. It is sort of, you know, let me tell you about all the value that you're getting here. Let me tell you why th uh, this is such a good value and why you should buy it. And what they're buying is, you know, your specific contributions to their company. I love the putting it in writing. Uh, there was an article that I read oh, a decade ago and I've never, it, it's on, in the other direction, but it's, uh, I've never applied it to like salary negotiation. Putting it in writing is absolutely genius because we've all probably had the experience of going to a conference and learning some great new technology. And we come back to the workplace and we say, we got to use technology X. It's so great. And people are like, well, what's so great about it? And you try to remember what was in the conference and you try to, and you kind of stammer and stumble through and they're like, well, but what about this? And, and you don't know because you haven't thought it through. And you really the, just remember how excited you were. Yes. And uh, somebody described that as in, in sales, uh, it, the reason you have to talk to the decision maker is that there's a big difference between um, selling someone so well that they're willing to buy and the much harder selling someone so well that they are capable of selling. 
the thing that you have sold them. And if you provide your justification in writing, when they turn around and have to provide a reason to their, to their boss, they can just pass your sales letter on um, and let you try to sell to them directly even though you don't, I mean, you don't know you're selling to them directly. He's just passing on what you wrote uh, or she is just passing on what you wrote. And the, the great part about that is, is if, you, if you provide this verbally, then when the interviewer tries to talk to their boss, they have to try – you have to have sold them so well that they can sell you um, <laughs> up the river. I mean up the, up the org chart. <laughs> and um, – and that's that's the that's the the brilliant part of this, right? By putting this in in writing, you've you've effectively written a sales letter about yourself. That's exactly right. That's that's why you do it. It's a great summary. So one one other thing, and David has pointed this out that when he negotiates, he also negotiates things like vacation days and benefits and yeah. whatever, because that's all part of the package. So we've been talking about salary, but if they give you an offer that where the salary number doesn't match. But it's got pretty awesome benefits. Do you have to push as hard to make sure that that salary number matches your minimum salary? Or do you just kind of say, okay, well, you know, the stock options are good, so I guess I'll just go with it. So this is where we get into sort of my, again, another kind of twist that I put on my own method. My personal preference, and I think it should be yours, (laughs) and this is, you know, not just you, Chuck, but, you know, everybody, is you should get the base salary to be as robust as you can. Uh, even in the face of really good benefits, yeah. uh, you should negotiate your base salary. And the reason is, um, you know, you can't make your mortgage payment with RSUs um, and, and other benefits. Um, a signing bonus is sort of cash in hand, but that's a one-time uh, thing that's not going to happen for you again next year. Um, what sorry, are RSUs? Sorry about that. Restricted stock units. So they're, uh, they're a nice little uh, bargaining chip that people will give you and say, yeah, we'll give you, know, basically like here are your stock options, right? Right. Um, stock options sound great. And they'll tell you these, you know, right now these stock options are valued at $15,000 and they'll vest over four years. But the, the bottom line is you have no idea what the value of those are. But it, you do know what the value of base salary is, which is exactly the number that it's written on paper as. So uh, Chuck, I, I recommend maximizing your base salary first. And your minimum acceptable salary should be a base salary number. Once you've maximized your base salary, my rule of thumb is when you're negotiating, if they do not say yes to the last base salary that you suggested, then you still have room to negotiate, including benefits. So if you counter at 60000 and they say, well, uh, how about 55000 and they're not going up from fifty-five. Then you can say, okay, well, I countered at 60. You guys came up to 55, so thank you for that. Um, but I wanted to get 60. So if you can do 55 and how about add another paid vacation week because I'd like to go away in the summer with my family, uh, then I'm on board. So 55 plus one more week of vacation on what you gave me in the package and, and I'm on board. Um, so it's a sort of a secondary consideration. Once you've maximized base salary and you've exceeded your minimum acceptable base salary, then I recommend starting to push those levers in terms of other benefits that are important to you. And you should just, you know, prioritize them in terms of what's, you know, more, most important. Most of the time it's, it's uh, vacation days because that's pretty close to additional base salary. Like there's an actual annual value on that. Um, but it could be a signing bonus or a relocation bonus or the option to work from home two days a week so you don't have to commute or a reimbursement for your co-working space if you're a remote worker and, and that sort of thing. So I really liked in the book your technique of 
scripting that out where you basically said, okay, so, um, they can't, they offered me, let's say $50,000 and, um, I, I countered with, uh, $55,000. So then you have the increments in between 51, 52, 53, 54, maybe, you know, a $500 break in there instead of a thousand dollar break between them. But then you basically said, okay, so at each level it's, you know, 56, if they say yes, then I accept the job. If they say 55, then maybe I still accept the job. If it's 54, then I, you know, I ask, well, I'd be happier at, you know, 54.5. And then if that doesn't work, then, well, then I'd like more vacation or I'd like better benefits or I'd like. And, and so by having that all figured out beforehand, so you can just look at it and say, okay, what number did they give back? And what is my counter going to be to that? Then... I really like just being able to evaluate that before I'm under that emotional stress again of trying to make a decision based on what do I really want. I already know what I want because I wrote it down. Yeah, that's exactly right. So that's why I recommend that, um, the script. Uh, I did that. I developed that for myself. So a lot of the, the technique that I developed was for myself and then kind of leveraging what I did for myself to help other people. And then I was able to kind of formalize it. But there's a specific story that I have about that script that made me another 1500 bucks, uh, which was I had, in, I have a giant whiteboard in my office that I, that I lease every month. And I was negotiating with a company. This is a, a few years ago. And I had written a script just like you described Chuck on the whiteboard. I did that for the exact reason you mentioned, which was, I know that this is going to be a stressful conversation. Usually I call this the final discussion. So you can counter offer through email, but eventually what's going to happen is the recruiter is going to say, okay, thanks for your counter. Uh, do you have some time to talk tomorrow for about 15 minutes? And so that's leading into the final discussion where they're going to call you and they're going to respond to your counter in real time. And now you don't have the luxury of sort of pondering what you're going to do for your next move and um, you know, crafting these carefully worded emails. They're going to come back to you and say, uh, you countered at 60. We can't do that, but we can do 55. And then what are you going to do? And so it's really easy to get flustered uh, in that situation. And I did. And uh, in my negotiation, uh, they came back with the number. My inclination when they said the number they came back with was to, to try and get more vacation days. And so I actually started to say the sentence, okay, uh, is there any way that we could look at vacate? And then I stopped right in the middle of the word vacation. And as I noticed my whiteboard and the whiteboard did not say, I should say vacation days. The whiteboard said I should counter with another number. And so I said, actually, if you can come up to 58,000, then I'm on board. And the recruiter paused for maybe half a second and said, okay, let me go uh, run that by finance. I'll get back to you. Right. And then it was over. Um, so that call was, I think, three minutes. But I, I literally would have cost myself base salary because I got flustered, even though I had already thought about it very carefully. The fact that I had mm -hmm. it written down to read from and, and just read from a script saved me that money in the, in the heat of the moment in the negotiation. That's awesome. There's, uh, I need to get better at interviewing. So rather than uh, make a try to make a point here, I'm going to actually ask our guest this one. Um, so, um, how many times do you banter back and forth before you start to decide that? I mean, because each each time you you volley, it's not it's not a frictionless transaction, right? There's a certain point at which They've countered you 15 times and you start going, do I really want to work? I mean, we're down, we're volleying now over how many, you know, you know, it, we, I want 50,000 and 75 cents and they're offering 50,000 and 25 cents, right? One of you is going to get sick of the negotiation um, and start questioning. You're either going to question 
do I really want to work here? Or they're going to question, do we really want to hire this guy? Um, or this, or this, you know, do we want to hire this woman? And you can volley that back and forth when I'm actually not, I'm not going to say when I'm going to say, do you think that's a factor? And if so, um, how do you measure it and how do you script it? Right. So that's a good question. I would say on average, the number of times you go back and forth is only two or three. Um, I think, uh, one thing that's important to remember is once they've made an offer and you've made a counteroffer, so it's easy to think, well, we're talking about kind of a, an infinite universe of possibilities here, and so how do we find the right one? Um, but the reality is that their offer and then your counteroffer has um, narrowed the scope of your negotiation significantly. So let's give a really wide range where you counter 20%. So they offer 50000 you counter at 60000 which is a full 20% there are still only essentially nine increments of $1,000 between their offer and your counteroffer. Mm -hmm. So you've now narrowed sort of the universe of possible numbers that you're going to wind up at from all of the numbers to somewhere between fifty dollars and $60,000. And so you counted at sixty, they're going to come back with some number. And then on your script, either you'll respond with one more number. So let's say they come back at 55 on your 60 counter. And you say, well, 55 is nice, but I'd be, you know, if you, if you can come up to 58, I'm on board. And then they say, okay, and you're done. Or they say, sorry, the best we can do is 56. And then, you know, per my kind of rule of thumb earlier, if they don't say yes to your last one, so now um, they, they said 56. And you say, well, I wanted to get up to 58 on my last ask. If you can do 56 in another week of vacation, then I'm on board. Right. And that might happen one or two more times if they say we, we can't budge on vacation. It's just not negotiable. We don't we're not able to move it at our company. It's, it's written in stone. You can say, OK, well, I'm going to have to move across the, com the, the country. Can you do 56 and a five thousand dollar relocation stipend? Right. right. And then you're pretty much done. So so it does seem like it could go on forever and you're nickel and diming. But usually I break it into thousand dollar increments unless I go above one hundred thousand. And then we're talking about two thousand dollar increments and it'll be one or two volleys on salary and then another one or two volleys on benefits, and then it's over. And this will usually happen, like I said, it's, it's often a, a live conversation on the phone, which is why you have the script, and it'll take you know, literally three minutes, four minutes, to, till they say either yes, or they say, okay, I need to go run that by finance, which is a kind of a soft yes. That's a good point, that if you're, if you're live and negotiating, that kind of counts as one volley, even if you go back and forth three or four times. In, in terms of annoyance and, and frustration, right? It's, I, I've, I've had a client uh, turn me down just because the where they started at was so low. And I told them up front, I said, you're probably so low that this, this may become a frustrating discussion for us. And they were like, no, 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 let's, let's, let's keep talking. They, they really wanted to keep me talking and they really wanted their very low anchor to stay valid. And I, I pushed, for, I you know, kept pushing and I kept finding alternatives for them that didn't work out. And after about, oh, three or four times, maybe probably, probably five times. And this was over, I'd say two months. Uh, I didn't hear anything from them for like three weeks. And then just out of the blue, they said, you know what, we don't think you're going to be happy working here. And, and that was the end of the discussion. And I felt really bad. I thought, man, boy, did I really blow it with the, did I over negotiate? And, and then I, I kind of looked at the at their last offer, and it was it was so low that it was just there was just no way I was going to be comfortable, you know, working for them at that value. It's it's the related to Batna we talked about earlier. There's another value that there's some value that if you win the negotiation, the value is so low that you will kick yourself 
for winning. You'd be like, oh, I can't believe I took this job at this salary. And um, I was kind of doing that. And, and fortunately, their, their numbers were all below that minimum threshold. So I used that to tide myself over. Well, I ran into somebody from that company about two years later um, as I was uh, actually poaching him to come work uh, for uh, Cover My Meds. And I told him that story. And he said, um, yeah, you would not have been happy here. Um, and then he told me about the the working environments. The, the working environment was exactly like the negotiating environment. And um, basically all the, the employees were continually being nickeled and dimed to death by the employer. And it was it was very revealing. So not sure where I was going with that story other than the one time I've overdone the negotiation, uh, it was it was telling to me. And, and it was actually a valid tell. It felt really bad at the time, but it was a valid telltale that I would not have been happy in that environment. Well, I think you you uh, did a great thing there by you kind of looped back on the minimum acceptable salary that we talked about earlier, which is sort of my solution to that uh, protracted problem that, that you mentioned, right? Um, and so by using the minimum acceptable salary, the way that I recommend people deal with that is actually if their offer is just so low that you can't counter 10 to 20% and get above your minimum acceptable salary, then your next response is, thank you for the offer. I really appreciate it, but I can't accept this job for less than $52,000. And that enables you uh, to to use that minimum acceptable to just draw that line in the sand and sort of end the negotiation. So if they're way Mm -hmm. out of bounds, then the minimum acceptable is the way that you you just kind of hit the big, you, you pull the ripcord, right? And just say, uh, you know, I can't accept the job for less than my minimum. And they either say, okay, come aboard, or they hem and haw, and then you end up walking away. Um, so that's a, that's a great illustration of exactly the kind of case where the minimum acceptable salary will come into play. It, that's a, 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 good, uh, a good summary on that. Thank you. Um, we talked about researching the companies, and I, I think this ties back into it as well, that a negotiation always involves telling a story. Right, that you know the the employer is telling a story that you know we're a great pla- great place to work, but we are economical and and wise in our our resource spending, and you are countering with a with a story of uh, I am highly valuable and you know I am worth the investment. Uh, you know the you would not be squandering your resources; you would be investing with me, and the. The other place where I've had negotiations go on uh, too long, and this one I, I fired them uh, or I, I, I terminated the, the interview, um, was a place that um, made it very clear that their their internal monologue, their story was, we are looking for um, idiot people that we have to train so that we get to treat you like idiot people. <laughs> and um, you know some things and we don't care. We don't value the thing. We don't value any of the things that you bring to the table, and I, it finally dawned on me. They have just said exactly what I needed to hear. We don't value dot 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 you, period. And I'm like, okay, yep, I've got enough information. Thank you for the offer, but no, thank you. Josh, I have a question. Okay. We've been talking about maximizing salary, but aren't there disadvantages to doing that? Specifically, if I make more at a particular company than I can get on the general market, maybe I went to work in the finance industry and I'm just not going to be able to make the same salary at any place with like lower pressure. 
then it makes it really hard to switch. It can trap you in a job where you got a particularly good salary because it's so hard for us to take a salary cut. Golden handcuffs. Yeah. Yeah, so I think I, I do think that could be an issue. Um, how to address it, though, I think is the challenge, right? Like, I think if you're going to do that job, you might as well get paid the most you can to do it. Um, one way to sort of escape that, and I think this opens up a, a kind of a bigger discussion of um, almost personal finance and what you're doing with your money, but a really good way to escape the situation you just described is to be very uh, frugal or diligent with your personal finances such that, yes, I'm working a job right now that I don't love. It pays really well. It pays more than I can get on the market. So what I'm going to do is save as much of that money as I can to give myself other options in the future that don't necessarily include working this job. Um, and I'm speaking from personal experience here. I loved, to be clear, anybody that I know that I used to work with, I loved my last job and the team that I worked with. I had a wonderful team at a wonderful company, but the job just wasn't satisfying for me, but it had the benefit of being a good paying job. So what I did was I saved about 70% of my take-home pay for a year and a half. And then I had the option to do what I did, which was to leave my, my day job and focus on uh, my book and coaching and all that good stuff. So I think, you know, th this may be easier said than done, but in that situation, my advice to a person in that situation is if you don't like that job, but you feel like it's paying a lot better than you could get elsewhere, save as much of your income as you possibly can to give yourself more options in the future that don't necessarily involve requiring a steady paycheck to survive. That's useful. Personally, I prefer to get, if you're going to pay me more than market, give me a bonus instead of higher salary. Which sure. kind of has the same effect on me. Right. And that's, again, kind of back to, you know, what's my personal preference? Do I prefer that base salary? Do, do I want to get a bonus? Um, and I think that moves around, you know, person to person. I'm always, you know, kind of laser focused on base salary. But I think, you know, asking for it in terms of a bonus might be better and could make it easier for you to say, yeah, this isn't for me anymore. I'll just go substitute that base salary somewhere else. When you said substitute, I thought you were going to say substitute teach. <laughs> <laughs> substitute teach. Maybe. But my, you probably would need to have saved up quite a bit of money to uh, survive for a long time substitute teaching alone. Right. All right. Um, I need to push us into picks, but I have, if you can answer this question in like one minute, that would be cool. What about the people who are new and don't have a lot of experience or something to offer when they do the counter offer? They're kind of looking for somebody to take a chance on them, so to speak, or at least it feels that way. Uh, what, what do they do during salary negotiations? They still counter. Um, it, it's a little counterintuitive uh, for the reasons that you just mentioned, but you still counter offer. And the reason is that even if you're, this is your first job um, out of college, you're negotiating your first job out of college, yes, you're probably going to get less money than somebody with more experience. However, the offer that was made to you, again, is in the ballpark of what the company is willing to pay a person for their first job out of college with your skill set and experience. And so your job during the interview is to convince them that you've paid attention, you've done your research, which should, which should make you better than the, the median person applying for that job because you actually care, you've done your research, you know what the company's up to and how you can help it. You impress them throughout the interview, and then you counteroffer essentially as a feeler to see what are they willing to pay this new hire position. Um, I helped someone um, about a year ago uh, he was going to work in um, sort of a lower rung of the healthcare industry in terms of experience. And his, I think his salary was going to be $40,000 and he negotiated up to $44,000. So 
uh, not a huge jump, but the bottom line is there's still a range. They're not offering you the absolute maximum they're willing to pay. There's probably room to move above that. And the way that you find out how much room there is above that is to counteroffer. Got it. All right, let's go ahead and do some picks. David, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure. Uh, I'll just move through these really quickly. Um, we can't talk about salary without me recommending Jack Chapman's book. Uh, I probably should ask Josh uh, what his opinion on it was. Um, but uh, Jack Chapman wrote a book oh, about 10 years ago uh, called Negotiating Your Salary, How to Make $1,000 a Minute. And it, it, it's kind of like the the whiteboard comment that Jack made that if you – if you squander the negotiation time, you're going to leave a lot of money on the table. But if you do the right things in the right order, you can take a lot more money off the table and and make the employer happier at the same time that they've got you at the value that you know that you feel comfortable with. Um, Jack has put up like five tips to help him sell the book. They're just if you just go to YouTube and search for salary negotiations tip Jack Chapman. Uh, you'll come up with all five, but I'll put a link to each of the five in the show notes along with a link to the book. Uh, highly recommend it. The, the, the book is is really, really good. The, the tips, my favorite of the tips is called the flinch, which is a specific negotiation technique for when they give you their number. Uh, if you're doing it in person, there's a, a way to respond to that that sends a very strong body language that they have disappointed you. Even, even if you're doing backflips inside because the number is like, 20 grand above what you were hoping for, you, you still use this response and uh, it, can, it can strengthen your position. Um, the other pick that I have is just silliness, uh, just pure unadulterated silliness. I love anime and uh, there's a fantastic one out there called Hunter x Hunter. They, there was a manga for a long time and then in 1999 there was a TV series and they rebooted the series in 2011. The first five uh, series are on Netflix right now. Uh, if you have Netflix streaming, you can get that for free. And they are absolutely uh, fantastic. Just, uh, if you like anime, and it's it's cartoons for adults. It's gory. There's there's a lot of violence. It's a lot of kung fu. Um, and, you know, people getting sliced up and, and that sort of thing. So, I mean, it's not for kids. Um, but the main character is this 12-year-old boy that is just pure enthusiasm. He's he just, he, everything makes him happy. Everything makes him want to just succeed in life and go forward, and uh, they go out and catch, you know, monsters, uh, great big scary – I mean, it's basically like Pokemon, only, you know, more violent, and uh, it's a fantastic uh, – it's just a fantastic uh, series. Uh, I, I've, I've binge watched – What's it called again? It's called Hunter x Hunter. And uh, I'll put a link to Wikipedia for those of you who don't have Netflix. Also, I don't know how to link to it from Netflix. And um, I just absolutely love it. Uh, the, the series is not – doesn't really feel like Pokemon at all because 90% of what goes on is the schemings in between the human beings and you know how the hunters compete against each other. And some of them are psychotic and not friendly at all. And others are you know nice and supportive and wonderful. It's, it's a fantastic show. The best thing about it is the episodes are like 17 minutes long. So you can binge watch an entire season in like six hours, which is a lot of fun to do. So that was my picks. Awesome. Jessica, what are your picks? I have two picks. One is about negotiation. Uh, so I learned about negotiation and fatness and angers and things like this a few years ago from a blog called negotiateWithChad.blogspot.com. 
And I recommend it. Like, read it, like, back from the beginning. It's, you know, short blog posts of learning about negotiation. It's really good. My second pick, I just have to pick Pokemon Go because I love Pokemon Go. I'm having so much fun walking around and catching Pokemon and fighting with them. And it's just totally worth it. This game is way better. You can't postpone going to bed by playing it. You have to get out and move around. And you can catch Pokemon with your kids or with other grown-ups. And it's awesome. The end. Very cool. Yeah, I've been taking my kids out to uh, hunt Pokemon as well. And they get so excited. Uh, my 10-year-old, he just wouldn't be quiet. We walked, uh, you know, about five blocks, and he just he chatted the whole time about all the Pokemon he wanted to catch and everything. It was it was really fun. And we're doing it on my phone, so they're my Pokemon. But anyway, um, related to that, uh, this last week, um, I, so July has been insane because I've, I've missed like two or three weeks of, of time that I've spent doing... Um, all kinds of stuff. I was at podcast movement. Um, my sister was in town two weeks ago. Um, she's still here actually. Um, and then last week I went up to wood badge and wood badge is, um, adult leader training for boy scouts. Uh, it's put on by the boy scouts of America. Yes, you have to pay to go. Um, the price is like 150 bucks and the training is on par with what I've seen offered for like $5,000 in business and leadership training. So it's actually a terrific deal, and it's it's just a very powerful experience, um, and I'm super uh, I'm super bullish on it. So if you have any interest in Boy Scouts and you want to be an adult leader and you ha- are thinking at all about going to Wood Badge, I highly, highly, highly recommend it. Um, it's just I, I absolutely enjoyed it. Uh, I learned a lot of things. Um, it's helped me be more confident and I think be a better person. So. Um, I can't say enough good things about it. Um, so I'm going to pick wood badge. And then also, um, it was held up at Typhi scout camp, which is up above Mount Pleasant, Utah. Uh, David knows where that is, but there's not a whole lot out there. It's actually up on the (laughs) side of the mountain. And, uh, so lots of hiking, uh, beautiful, beautiful area. We saw like four and five point bucks just walk through camp because uh, people can't uh, hunt on the scout ranch that is on Mountain Dell Scout Ranch. And it was just beautiful, amazing. So I'm also going to put a pick in for that for Typhi Scout Camp. And, uh, yeah, those are my picks. Josh, what are your picks? Okay. So I uh, managed to narrow my picks down to three. Um, so I'll go, I'll go quickly here. Um, and <laughs> Jessica did better than I am going to do here because none of them have anything to do with negotiation. So, um, oops. Um, so my first pick is there's a show, uh, uh, most people listening to this are probably familiar with Penn and Teller who are magicians that have a show in Las mm-hmm. Vegas. And they're also sort of, um, uh, you know, TV celebrities. They've done a number of TV shows and their most recent show is called fool us, which is they are in their, um, their Rio, uh, all suites hotel and casino, uh, uh, presentation room or their, their, um, their theater and they have other music magicians come in and try to fool Penn and Teller. In other words, the, the magician trick and Penn and Teller try and figure out how they did it. And if the person cannot trick Penn and Teller, then they win a trophy and they get to, I think, um, you know, do one of Penn and Teller's show. So it's a really cool show. Uh, magic is always fun to watch. The thing I want to pick from that show is there is a magician that was on the last episode called Madi Gilbert, um, who doesn't have any hands and his specialty is sleight of hand magic. So I recommend wow. it just because um, 
he, I don't want to spoil anything, but I'll say that the trick he does is phenomenal. And the fact that he does it without hands is doubly phenomenal. And the feeling that I came away with it was, um, one, to think outside of the box, because I don't know how he figured out to do all these things that people do uh, with hands, without hands. But two, just that, uh, you know, we, I'm constantly discouraged when I'm doing things. And watching that was, wow, I had no reason to be discouraged. If, if he can figure out how to do what he does with no hands, uh, I can figure out how to do what I'm trying to do today with, you know, all of the, the faculties that I have available to me. Um, so that's number one. Number two is a book by Neil Stevenson called Seven Eves. Um, oh, by the way, the, the Mighty Joe Bear thing is on YouTube, and I'll share a link with you guys. So it's like a seven-minute clip that you can get on YouTube. Um, the second one is a book called Seven Eves by Neil Stevenson. It's sci-fi. It's an excellent book. I recommend the audiobook. Um, I listened to it a few months ago. Um, it's just a really fascinating book about sort of a, a post-apocalyptic world, um, but it's very sort of wonky in the same vein as The Martian was where you know they go into a lot of detail about what's happening and why it's happening, what the science is there. Um, so seven Eves by Neil Stevenson. It's an excellent, excellent sci-fi book. And the third thing is totally different than those first two. Um, if you haven't heard it, um, there's a great podcast that aired last year called mystery show. And my favorite episode of mystery show is called the belt buckle episode. And it's one of my favorite, um, storytelling podcast episodes ever. Um, so maybe something new that your listeners haven't heard, uh, check out mystery show podcast. Uh, and the belt buckle episode is just a phenomenal phenomenal storytelling, uh, you know, use of the storytelling medium and podcasting. So those are my three picks. All right. If people are getting ready to look for a job or they're kind of at that point where they are thinking, oh, I need help with salary negotiation, where do they go to get your book and other material? Sure. Um, so a good place uh, to go first is just um, get, holler at me on Twitter. I'm at Josh Doody, D-O-O-D-Y on Twitter. Um, the book website is fearlesssalarynegotiation.com and you can find the book and learn about my coaching and courses and all that good stuff. Um, something we didn't talk about today, but I know a lot of people are listening and they're thinking, well, I'm not negotiating a salary anytime soon. Uh, I'm happy at my job. Thanks very much. I might change jobs in a couple of years. Something you might be able to do right now is pursue your next promotion if you've been waiting for a promotion, but it's not happening for you. So if you go to fearlesssalarynegotiation.com slash promotion dash course, fearlesssalarynegotiation.com slash promotion dash course, uh, there's a free seven-day email course that you can take on how to get your next promotion. It will give you everything you need to get promoted at your day job right now instead of waiting. So that's something you know maybe your users can use right now instead of waiting. All right. Well, thanks for coming, Josh. Uh, we'll go ahead and wrap this up. Um, and we'll catch everyone next week. Thanks for Cheers. having me. I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks. Bye. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.